This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is December 8th, 2022, and I'm Ian Bushfield. And I'm Stuart Prest. Thanks for filling in. Scott's out of the country this week, and since he got so many episodes with you, well, I was uh, on leave taking some time off at different times or unavailable. I figured I'd do one with you. It seems only fair. Happy to help out. And that's a good show to do it on, because today we're going to be talking about the new cabinet that's sworn in. So there's lots of political machinations to break down and get into. And they already have mandate letters, so they have a lot of work to do, just like we do. Help us do that work. Patreon.com slash Politicoast. Let's dive in. A new cabinet was announced. You've done radio interviews on it already, Stuart. What's the takeaway you've been giving well it's these in in one sense it's the delivery of generational change so we see a bunch of, of new faces at the cabinet table and and faces those who have been in in more junior roles really stepping up so the the top line um, changes are, are seeing seeing katrina conroy as minister of finance i think she's going to be a, a crucial figure in in this uh, government and we can get into that not just because of her role uh, as finance uh, with finance but but her role is essentially the voice for the interior along with nathan cullen uh we see uh uh, Ravi Callan stepping into this new uh, super housing ministry, and and I think that's just telegraphing where the real priorities for this government lie in terms of uh, attention. I think some of that stability we're seeing in, in other portfolios, like uh, um, Mike Farnworth staying on with with public safety, and and seeing um, uh, folks stay on, Mitzi Dean staying on with uh, children and, and family development, and. Uh, um, Seeing uh, Murray Rankin staying on with an in Indigenous uh, uh, affairs and, and reconciliation, these these sorts of assignments suggest that I think there are areas where the government just wants to keep on keeping on. They just really want to maintain the direction. I think health gets thrown into that basket as well, with Adrian Dix hanging on as as health minister. And and where we're really going to see the, the 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 flash and the bang of this government comes in places like housing and and perhaps on climate readiness. And so we see Bowen Moss stepping into a full cabinet role finally there. Yeah, that was really. Interesting. We knew the new housing ministry was coming, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the other new ministry to expand cabinet slightly was this emergency management and climate readiness. Previously, emergency management, I think, was tacked on to Mike Farnworth's role as public safety. It kind of makes sense there. But I think the goal here, reading the mandate letter, is to create something that is a ministry about resilience, I guess, is probably the best way to put it. Like, Right. I think we have it's and now it's interesting. We have I think it's three different uh cabinet posts where something to do with climate is is in the the name, right? We have uh, uh obviously the uh, Minister for Environment and Climate Change Strategy, George Heyman, but now we have uh Energy Minds and Low Carbon Innovation, and Josie Osborne and 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 Emergency Management and Climate Readiness with the one Ma. And I think to some extent that's that's a bit of 
uh, advertising and branding, but but I think it also speaks to the reality that we have to uh, deal with uh, the the realities of uh, changing climate and attempts to move to a a low carbon uh, economy as uh, as distinct facets of of living with this changing climate. We want to to be part of the the global effort to to reduce emissions and to to curb the the the, the speed with which the the temperatures are rising around the planet, but we also have to deal with the fact that they are arising and we are going to continue to see these effects. It really is no shock to anyone in British Columbia at this point, whether we look at what happened in Lytton with fires there or we look at what happened on the Coquihalla. And so I think there is a certain amount of good sense in that along with the political branding. Yeah, I think one of the four pillars of EB's first hundred days is climate, right? It's as well as housing, uh, public safety and the toxic drug crisis. Um, he hasn't talked much about climate yet and what he's doing in the first hundred days, but I think with this new team, well, George Heyman is still there, but between Heyman, Josie Osborne in Energy Minds and Low Carbon Innovation, and Bowen Ma in the new role, as well as it does tie into things like transportation, housing will come up in this, and a few other roles will get tied into this, agriculture and food, no doubt. Climate change does touch everything, as it turns out. So, the change and some of the that that mix, right? That mix of experience and new voices. Um, it le- it left a lot of the pundit class kind of confused in many ways. But I I think it is just that it's that desire to try to feature some of the new people that EB works really well with and wants to get along with. Selena Robinson moved out of health to or moved out of finance to post secondary education. Uh, where is she still in cabinet, but most have clearly seen that's a demotion. You know, I love universities. We both think they're very important, but it's hard to make the case that post-secondary education is as critical to the province as the Minister of Finance. Uh, I would love to make that argument being a, a post-secondary instructor, but even I can't make that argument. So yeah, I think it is it is a demotion, but it is also going to be interesting to see what uh, Ms. Robinson does with with that portfolio, it is. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a, a moment of adjustment moving uh, out of a, a central uh, agency into into a, one of the line departments here. But I think once that once that dust settles, it, it, there's there's work to be done in the post secondary sector. Uh, whether it's uh, trying to to deal with uh, some of the issues that we're well aware of, like credentialing uh, uh, those who have uh, training out from from abroad coming to to BC. That's a that's a front and center issue. Associated with with uh, uh, the lack of uh, of doctors and other uh, health professionals in the province, but but there are other post secondary issues as well. How do we deal with the the, the balance between uh, domestic students and and international students? We have this. Uh, tendency for universities around and, and other post-secondary institutions around the province to to really try to attract as many students from abroad as possible and having them pay full freight for their education or just about full freight and it's leading to significant tuition increases which are creating protests in, in campuses at like UC, UBC and elsewhere so there's a lot to be discussed in, in post-secondary education and, I, and I'm not going to hijack this entire podcast to make it about that but I could. Lots of other really interesting names in here. Nikki Sharma in Attorney General. She was apparently the most popular pick. Uh, allegedly, that was the one who got people giving a standing ovation at the announcement and just tears like people really look up to her, a really rising star. And to go, I think she was in backbench before and to go right to Attorney General, like that's one of the most prominent roles. She has 
a big chance to do a lot here. Uh, one of the challenges with a role like Attorney General is you ideally want someone with legal background to sit in it since you are kind of the province's highest lawyer. And that does restrict how many people the province can choose from or David Eby could choose from based on his caucus. Uh, the NDP is not the party of lawyers, it turns out, but they have a few. They do have a few, but it, it is uh, a reminder too that in some ways, uh, Eby's biggest challenge, or one of them anyways, was to to replace himself in cabinet, going to the the, the big chair in the, in the center. Somebody's got to be the attorney general, and that was the role that he filled uh, quite admirably. He was the, uh, one of the star performers in John Horgan's cabinet. That's why he is now premier, or one of the reasons, anyways. And and so to have someone come in and, and be able to do that job, it's a job that uh, Murray Rankin, for instance, was was uh, pinch hitting in, and, and it it. It could have gone better. We'll put it that way. So, yeah, his question period performance was uh, not looked well upon by I think anyone who watched it. No, I, I mean it's it's difficult when when he's there for one set of responsibilities with uh, in, Indigenous relations, and then to have to take on this this whole other set of responsibilities at short notice. Um, it's it's tough to do, and I believe I believe he's seventy two now, so so he is uh, one of the the elder statespersons of this party to, uh, as well. Yeah, the other. People I'm kind of watching in this new caucus or in this new cabinet is Roshna Singh in education and childcare. This could be uh, a really big move. She was previously, I think, the parliamentary secretary for anti-racism initiatives. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of challenges in education. Uh, they did just get that collective agreement signed with the BCTF. So at least there's labor peace for her to deal with. But always tensions there. Brenda Bailey up to the Ministry of Jobs, another young face. Um, and Jennifer Whiteside moves from education over to mental health and addictions. So there's just a lot of deck shuffling, some new faces in there. And I guess this is most interesting to me because we didn't see a real cabinet shuffle since John Horgan became premier. Like there was a moderate one in 2020 when he got new faces to just have to add. But otherwise, he kept a pretty constant team. Yeah, yeah, and so now we are really seeing a a, sig a significant change aside from those those uh, more uh, senior people who are holding on to their positions. And I think we're we're getting a sense of who the who the new stars of of this party are. And and, and Nikki Sharma is, is definitely one of those. And she's uh, breaking barriers and taking on this position in a number of ways. Uh, uh, and it, it, it does. Uh, talking about uh, 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 Rashna Singh uh, brings up uh, the way in which this uh, cabinet seems to be constructed for both the policy but also the politics. And I think uh, we are seeing a real effort to hold on to any uh, the, the gains in, in Surrey and, and elsewhere south of the Fraser. But there's a um, there's a pretty heavy, pretty decided uh, regional disparity in in terms of who, where where people are coming from in this cabinet. So we have uh, four four ministers from Surrey. We have uh, another uh, four from the Fraser Valley. We we have five from Vancouver, five, six more from north of the Fraser River, uh, and seven from the island. So these are areas of NDP strength. It makes sense that this is where the the, the ministers would come from. But but it's also areas where they're really trying to. To, to I think hold on to some gains in the election, particularly south of the Fraser. Yeah, uh, it's always that challenge of building a diverse cabinet. Right, you need to make sure you have all the regions covered in your first past the post system. You also this is a gender balanced cabinet, which is good to see. I 
someone posted the BC Liberal critic portfolios, and I didn't have a chance to go through them very thoroughly and see who moved where. But my initial take was, oh, that's not gender balanced. Then someone else pointed, no, that's their entire caucus, though. And it's like, all right, fair mm -hmm. enough. You, they are male dominated. They can't gender balance that unless they just strip a bunch of roles away. That's right. But but I believe uh, in in this cabinet, uh, women actually outnumber uh, men. And so it's we're, we're beyond the, the this is 2015 mindset. It's not a question of trying to aim for exactly equal parity. It's 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 putting the people in the positions where they're going to excel. And and a lot of these tough jobs in front of government, women are, are the ones doing it. And uh, it's not that they, they, they couldn't have been the ones to do it before, but it's not even even a debate. It's just uh, getting on the with the work. And I think that's that's worth celebrating a little bit. It's worth noting that um, uh, it's it's remarkable that it's not terribly remarkable anymore. Indeed. One of the criticisms I know a lot of people have of this government is how they've handled, you know, the health file, the environmentalists are mad at how they've presumably, you know, arguably in some ways been not fast enough on climate change. People are concerned about the issues on public safety. Um, People, I think, are pretty happy, at least on the left, with how this government is doing on the labor front. I mean, there's always going to be complaints, but I've not heard anyone mad at Harry Baines. But there was definitely, I think, a desire from at least some quarters to see change maybe between Adrian Dix, George Heyman, and Mike Farnworth's portfolio. I know those are very senior members of this caucus, so I'm not surprised none moved. They're also generally pretty competent overall, although... I mean, like, there's this element of it where Adrian Dix has overseen two of the worst health crises in this province's history, right, between COVID and the toxic drug supply that's out there right now. And so he's probably the minister, the health minister who's seen more British Columbians die than any other health minister in peacetime in history. And, you know, that's not like it's his fault, but there's always that question of like, did he do enough? And there's that lingering question that about transparency and challenges there. I mean, this is a sign that David Eby has faith in him, at least, to keep doing what he's been doing. But, you know, I at least have some like a little bit of frustration that there could be something different done here, mainly as I just like watch everyone get sick around me and see children's hospitals over mm -hmm. full. Yeah, I think these so the the three that you mentioned uh Heyman environment and 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 Dixon health and 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 Farnworth and in public safety they're all notable for being in files where essentially this government cannot please everyone that they're going to make some people mad and and I think it's absolutely fair to question the government on whether they're doing enough in the the very vaccine heavy but um say masking light strategy that they've settled into uh, since the beginning of 2022 and I think that's that seems like that's a pretty permanent permanent change. We just get no indication from uh, Dr. Henry that that changes in the offering on that, on that front, that rather she's, she is permanently sensitive to not trying to um, put additional impositions on, on people. It just seems like that's not a direction the government wants to go in, barring some sort of catastrophic new development, I think. So um, I think it's a reflection of, of the the thinking of the department as a, as a whole, or at least the 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 unelected uh, chief figures as well. So I don't think it's just just Dix, although Dix ultimately bears responsibility for it. But I think they the the it seems like my reading is the consensus for greater action broke 
early 2022. And that is something that broke across the country and it was, um, not necessarily driven by the the convoy in Ottawa, but but that was sort of uh, one of the the moments where it really broke out into the open. This this mass questioning of the direction of the country, and I think governments are just incredibly uh, leery about doing anything to stoke those those fires again. And I don't know that's the the great greatest basis for policy making. You don't want to be making a policy from a position of, of fear, but it seems I think it is also reflective of this idea idea that so many people are just wanting to get on with their lives and 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 they're not really willing to entertain restrictions to to safeguard the lives of their fellow citizens that's that's where they are and and so for dicks to do more i think would probably keep a portion of the population safer but um it would it would still create this 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 renewed animosity that they seem so anxious to avoid indeed even without the public safety or, or you know the public health restrictions angle i'm just frustrated at the transparency angle but we can move on from there uh one of the well no let's let, no. let's spotlight that for one second because that is if if you wanted to have a broad criticism of this government as a whole in all its dealings transparency is really bad whether you're looking at access to to information requests and, and uh, making those just harder to obtain uh just the the lack of, of really transparent numbers despite the the endless urgings of uh the, the province's uh data uh, journalists and and others who are just trying to to make their own informed decisions it's just you could you you can make data transparent and it can help your cause if it's reflective of of the balance that you're trying to achieve you can make it tell the story you need to by giving people access to the same information or at least good information the substantive information that will help them make their choices because particularly when the province is is not taking more aggressive action and it really is up to people to keep themselves safe there's really no excuse for not making as much data as possible available i mean the big criticism that came out this last week was that the province had sat on the news that at least six children people under 18 have died from the flu this fall in the province of bc which is about the average number of children that die in canada per year and there's all kinds of reasons that we can figure out why that's happened, but it's a tragic number that the government had to go, oh, yeah, I guess that actually is true that you found out media via backroom sources. And then they were kind of forced into transparency, and it's just disheartening. Right. And that's 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 the sort of there's no reason to be forced into those positions and to make yourselves look bad just be proactive with disclosure you will help yourself rather than making it look like you're hiding something being upfront about yes this is a very bad flu season this is why you need to go get vaccinated get the flu shot to try to keep this from becoming uh, more of a widespread problem if you are sick stay home because it is so serious it actually helps them make the public health case so go and make that case and and allow families to 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 make their decisions and to be worried those particularly those who are in any way immunocompromised or those who face additional uh, health concerns and even and those who are 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 healthy people need to be aware of the risks that they're facing and then they can make the decisions that are right for them but if you don't give the information and you don't make the, the decision to be more careful on their behalf then really you're doing a disservice well let's jump back to cabinet and to the people not in cabinet the ndp caucus is large enough you know they can have 
24 odd, I don't have the number in front of me, people in cabinet, plus another dozen parliamentary secretaries who we won't get into. But there's a dozen people who got nothing. Uh, Raj Chohan remains speaker. Spencer Chandra Herbert, as far as I know, is remaining deputy speaker. But there's a few people who are out. Uh, notably, Katrina Chen specifically asked to not be in cabinet, and she went public with the fact that that is relating to longstanding trauma from gender-based violence that she's been a victim of. And so uh, we wish her well in her recovery from that. Um, very brave to speak to that and not just say personal reasons, not that she had to. Uh, George Chow and Nicholas Simons are also out of cabinet. I did look up both of their ages. Uh, Chow is quite old and has been around for quite a long time in caucus. Uh, and Nick Simons as well is, I think, veering on 65. So I can see why neither probably wanted a role again, or maybe they didn't get on with David Eby. Uh, but I could see mm -hmm. not, both not running again in the next election. Uh, John Horgan's not, that not anything. <laughs> so that, that really there's... <laughs> it. it it's a pointed. Um, uh, you're not getting anything to, to Finn Donnelly and to, to uh, Ginny Sims and, and to a, just a, a couple of others who don't, essentially don't have a, don't have a reason to be in a, be a backbencher. And so it's a it's a uh, it's it's a very large cabinet considering the size of the caucus. I guess there's a lot of work to be done. But uh, yeah, you have to. I do wonder how Finn Donnelly is feeling today. Yeah, his previous role was like parliamentary secretary for fisheries, and I did see him speak to that role a couple months ago. He did a lot of work on fisheries when he was a federal MP, and he cares a lot about fish. I can tell, like, personally, that is his thing. I think he worked in uh, an environmental NGO before he was an MLA, and he worked on fisheries issues. And so he was very excited about it. Uh, and so that has to be disappointing to him to not get to continue to be the fish guy. Although I'm sure he can still speak to it uh, in Victoria. Um, but yeah, he can join Michelle Babchuk, Gary Bag, Ron Ray Leonard, Mike Starchuk and Henry Lau in the backbench. It feels like most of the younger MLAs did get roles though. Yeah, I think there there is this the sense of a new guard and and, and so it, it is not surprising that we see some of the older uh MLAs who are are I, I would not be surprised if they're not running again uh, or just uh, beginning that process of, of moving themselves out. I, I would be interested to see. Obviously, we've seen uh, Ginny Sims look for look for work elsewhere, whether Finn Donnelly uh, contemplates a, a similar move, uh, uh, move to jump to, to municipal politics as well next time around. If, if this seems like uh, he's hit a ceiling here, this may be a, this is a trend we've seen in a number of other uh, jurisdictions as well. The challenge for all of them is we just had our municipal elections. Sims didn't uh, do well in hers uh, in Surrey, but they'll all have to make a decision about whether they run again provincially before that happens, or maybe there'll be, or maybe there'll be another federal no, they election don't. coming up. They could, yeah, they can just wait until a new job comes on and then run for that one. Well, they all have lots to do. Along with the announcement of the council and the cabinet, uh, the mandate letters have already gone up. And what I love about the buried website where these are all hidden on the government, not, they're not hidden, but it's not like the most obvious how to find this. Uh, they've posted the mandate letters before they even have headshot photos of every cabinet member, which I just found amusing. Uh, some of the cabinet pictures are also quite out of date uh, and people look much younger than they are today like adrian dix and others but wow. we all wish in we fairness could. my my photo on linkedin i believe dates from the 
2000, the, the, the OATS. So it, it does happen. Uh, I didn't have a chance to go through all of these. Uh, cabinet mandate letters can be pretty boring. They all follow a standard format of a lot of copy-pasted text at the start and end that pats the government on the back. They say, congrats on being the new minister of X. Here's what we've accomplished on X. Now go ahead and do these bullet points. And so it's those bullet points that I'm kind of pulling out. Uh, I found the finance ministers to be pretty interesting. The big question is, you know, they brought in Katrin Conroy seemingly out of nowhere. Like she is a longtime caucus member um, and someone who's held multiple cabinet portfolios, but pretty much everyone went, I didn't have her pegged as coming into finance. And so the question is, you know, what is she going to do with this new role? And she's been given a number of new avenues to go after. And thanks to Selena Robinson, she also has $5 billion to spend as she goes on this. Um, but some of the first things that David Eby has set out is trying to basically bring in more money. Uh, the first section surrounds housing. So it targets trying to uh, expand the speculation and vacancy tax, bring in an effective flipping tax, and do a couple other things to really crack down on housing speculation or any kinds of actions that are deemed I guess, predatory in the real estate market. Mm -hmm. well, I think this is a, a, an indication that the the things that matter, whether we're talking about finance or whether we're talking about housing, whether we're talking about probably half a dozen other portfolios, it's housing. So this is where the government's attention is. And I think we'd see similar things, whether we're looking at the, the health minister's mandate letter or the post-secondary minister, education minister's mandate letter, trying to find uh, training for things like health uh, professionals. This government has a set, certain set of priorities, and that's really where the energy is, is going to go, I think. So we're, we're getting a sense of that. The themes of the first 100 days will be the themes of the second 100 days and the third 100 days and so on. So, um, uh, yeah, it is interesting that it's a fairly... Um, narrow set of, of response or, or tasks for, for the finance minister focused on uh, reducing that, uh, uh, that, that demand side uh, equation for, for housing. And it, again, it's something that the government is already doing in, in a number of, of ways. And so we're, we're just uh, incrementally changing things further at, at this point. And, uh, and that's not going to be the, the thing that tips the balance for, for, for housing affordability in the, in the province, but as part of the effort. It's not just on the demand side, Stuart. Also in her letter is to finally deliver the long-promised renter's rebate that was in the 2017 platform, that was in the 2020 platform, but it's 2022 and renters still don't have their 400 bucks a year, I think it is, of cash back from the government. Maybe next year. Well, <laughs> this this may be the year and you know that... that $400, $500, whatever it turns out to be. You know, that's money in your pocket. And uh, sure, it's, it's, it's no uh, uh, homeowner's rebate on, on, on uh, uh, tax uh, property taxes or anything like that, but, but it's, it's something. And the other big thing, and it's also related to housing that I saw in here, is that she's going to be working with the Minister of Housing to establish a rental housing acquisition fund. And this is described as something that will support nonprofits to purchase affordable rental buildings for sale and protect renters from being displaced from their homes by big corporations. I think the idea is basically this low-rise or mid-rise apartment building that's full of rentals goes up for sale because some, you know, uh, corporation uh, doesn't want to maintain it anymore, and a nonprofit society can take it over with some funding from the province and run it as a continual rental building, which is actually, I think, a pretty novel idea. 
Yeah, I think it's it's another one of these ways in which they're they're really trying to maximize the efficiency of the the, the current housing supply and, and make sure that it it serves the 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 actual the the, the greatest need within within the, the housing market. So trying to ensure that um, wherever wherever there are units that are available, that they are being made available to to. Uh, uh, renters uh, at uh, as at, in a reasonable ongoing basis it sounds like it's a it's a good policy and it emulates some things that we've seen uh vancouver try to do as a city but i think having provincial support for that kind of initiative can can make it uh, substantially more effective and i think that leads us into ravi cologne's mandate letter as minister of housing uh he's got a lot to do because the government is very committed to building a lot more housing uh and so a lot of this seems to work in the ideas that David Eby pitched during that brief period where we had a leadership race and he released one policy and it was on housing. And then people went, where did that go when he released the Housing Supply Act? And that focused on a couple things. So Cologne has to deliver a refreshed housing strategy that's partially already underway. So there'll be a BC builds to build housing for middle income families, uh, resolving landlord tenant disputes faster. Uh, that rental housing acquisition fund, uh, really working with local governments to crack down on Airbnbs. And I think the big thing in here is legalizing secondary suites province-wide. Uh, that won't make a big difference, I think, in Metrovan. Most of the communities around here do allow secondary suites and basement suites. They aren't always done legally, but they are allowed. Uh, and to also... Uh, Cologne will be allowed to expand the number of units allowed to be built in cities using single-family home development permit processes. That one's a bit vague to me. It kind of reads like allow more single-family homes to be built, but I think he means build denser within single-family zoning. Yeah, I think it's it's suggesting that there will be a minimum so duplexes where uh, single-family housing is currently allowed or triplexes, and and so it's it's uh, yet yet another way. It sounds like it's trying to get the province to the place that. Metro van largely is already, and and so that's that's laudable, but it's also not going to solve this situation in, in Vancouver, uh, where it is most acute. Yeah, the rest of it's a lot more vague. It's things like, you know, move forward the Housing Supply Act that was just passed that fast tracks or sets the targets at municipalities and make sure they actually meet them. Uh, work with the Minister of Transportation to make sure there's transit-oriented development built around transit stations. This might tie into the powers the province gave TransLink and other transit agencies to build near transit hubs, um, but we don't have a lot of specifics here in the meantime. So some promising stuff. Uh, it's good to you know, set those rules province-wide and make sure that those extra rentals can be opened up. Um, yep. Yeah, the real the test. The piece here. Go ahead. No, I was good. Uh, sorry, you say your test, and I'll say the real. I guess the real test for this is, you know, what does Ravi Cologne do with this portfolio? Like, it's with any of these, you have what's on paper, but they can always go beyond, above and beyond that, or they there's no real like punishment if you don't meet it. Well, in this necessarily. case, necessarily. So the the, the so the 
the piece that is not here that is interesting uh, and it, it's, it's a real missing piece for for solving the housing affordability crisis in in BC and, and the prov- provincial government can't do it alone they need federal support to do it but is just s- sustained additional funding to the tune of maybe like a billion dollars a year for social subsidized housing if you really really wanted to crack this nut just making sure there's this stable predictable supply of housing that the market will never meet. And then once you do that, it will take the pressure off the bottom of the, the market housing, uh, uh, the market housing market, and uh, it will uh, start to to turn the, the ship around. But but it's a significant financial investment, additional uh, capital investment, and and there would be returns on that, given that it would be building real assets within the, uh, within the province. It would be returned to the way in which things were done in the in the nineteen nineties and prior to that. But it was always done with federal support. Federal government had much greater uh, funding. Uh, capacity in in those days relative to the provinces. The provinces do collect more revenue now. They are more capable of doing some of that work on their own. And so I think um, that would be one of the things that I would continue if I if I were a journalist on this file, for instance, I would continue to ask about that because it seems like uh, it's one thing that the province is doing. It is building uh, some subsidized housing in the province, but it just it's not enough to to address the the shortfall from the 1990s when that process really uh, ran aground uh, and then was was not reignited until just the last few years. So we have this unmet need that that needs to be addressed. And if you really want to deal with the problem, then that has to be part of the solution. This additional supply. I guess the can, the money comes at the budget time, at least. So that's when we'll have to look for next. I mean, we'll get a throne speech and that'll be kind of vague promises and maybe we'll get some numbers about what they hope to do. I guess where you where I would keep an eye on for the specifics in here is this BC Builds program. I did Google that and that dates to uh, EB's uh, pitch back in September of what he would do. And Rob Shaw described it as on Twitter, a BC Builds program to partner with private and nonprofit and First Nations upzoning land, using public land, using government lending rates to rapidly build slash to build renter own units available only to BC residents. So it is a it, it is a construction goal. Is it's, it a yeah, modest one a, or is it an ambitious one remains to be seen. Right. And so and it's, it's a framework for additional construction and, and we don't really know it, and is it going to work with the um, the the existing uh, structures, uh, BC housing, and so on. Is it going to be? Um, is it is it just going to be a small sort of boutique uh, public private partnership? So it's a framework for additional housing, but we we don't know, and we won't know for some time what what it actually looks like on that. When we find out what it will be, uh, you know, the next big piece is obviously going to be the budget and. Uh, uh, the fact that uh, Ravi Callan is on housing and the premier has already signaled that housing is his top priority is an interesting dynamic. If we rewind prior to um, Anjali Apatarai jumping into to the leadership race, Ravi Callan was seen as the chief potential rival to uh, to EB for the uh, the premiership and uh, certainly the chief rival within caucus. So uh, Callan not running was seen as what was turning it into a coronation until um, Ms. Apatari upended that entire apple cart. But but it was uh, notable then to see these two potential rivals, now they are uh, allies within within the uh, the government, both landing on housing. I think it, it, it again, is really laser signaling the, the focus of this government, but it also means 
next time we have an election, this government better have something substantive to to show, not just like we have housing starts, but we have actually started to bend the housing uh, cost curve in, in some way. Like something is getting better because we have seen a lot of things being announced and 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 the situation getting worse for for British Columbians. And so uh, I think at this point the clock is is ticking a little bit. And given that the uh, two of the, the, the obviously the central figure in BC politics, but also his chief rival are both their their names are attached to housing now. They they have all kinds of political incentive to to really get this get this thing moving. So I would not be surprised if we see additional uh, financial uh, commitments to this. And there is money to go around. We know that as well. There's also the other thing we didn't mention is the real other tell that EB has a lot of faith in Cologne is. That he gave him the house leader portfolio or role as well. That was transferred from Mike Farnworth, who remain who is now deputy premier as well, I should mention. But Cologne gets house leader. And so that gives him a lot of internal unseen power in terms of who gets question period time and these kind of intercaucus dynamics go to him now. And that, you know, right. it's a very important Just- high ranking role. The logistics of getting the business of government done in the legislature that is up to uh, up to Mr. Callow now, and, and so how he how he he performs in, in that role will determine the success of the government. So yeah, Eb has really um, put his faith uh, in, uh, in in that relationship and in, in his ability to perform. So so again, we know who the central figures are. Uh, they are uh, Mr. Callan on the, the issue that matters most. Uh, but but Eb is going to be right there. And so it's one of the reasons why it's an interesting appointment. I I might have thought that uh, the two of them would want a little more space between them, but uh, but they're going to be working side by side on this major portfolio. And one of the dangers here, we haven't really talked about this yet, but one of the risks for for Mr. Eby here is in his desire to be seen as a, a man of action on on questions of policy. I, I get the distinct impression he likes doing policy, doing things a lot more than, let's say, campaigning. Um, is that this becomes the David Eby show, uh, that he is going to be the front of government on all these issues that that really matter, and he's going to be the face of government. And there are, uh, there are established people with, with real track records, and there are, are new stars on the ascent. And, and so uh, if if he starts taking up all the oxygen in the room, I think that can start to cre- that that could start to create additional uh, internal pressures uh, within within cabinet, and uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see how that situation evolves over time. Well, one of the things that highlights that issue for me is was flagged by Vaughn Palmer on Twitter, who pointed out that in the new government organizational charts. David Eby has increased the size of the premier's office to four deputy ministers, two associate deputy ministers, and he also has a special advisor on indigenous matters. So it's a sizable office, uh, slightly bigger than John Horgan had. Now, the dynamics of the people in that office will matter a lot, but just having more staff around you creates a gravitational pull, I guess, for political interest and focus. So He's going to be an important figure, obviously, he's not going just to be, because he's premier. Yep, he's going to be an important figure and the architecture, how it actually plays out in practice. It's going to be hard for us to tell from the outside what the, those dynamics are. So we'll be trying to read tea leaves and all that. But but uh, we 
I, th- I think we'll start to see just in terms of the the pronouncements that that come out and and who is who is seeming to to do the work of of speaking for for government is going to tell us some of those those things about uh, what kinds of communication are are happening behind the scenes and uh, it, it, this it, will have to be seen whether this is one of those governments like we see so often in Ottawa where everything runs through the the first minister's office and nothing gets done until a handful of close advisors sign off on it that's that allows for a, a strong centralization coordination of government but it also becomes a narrowing of the bandwidth of government if you if if the same six people have to be in on every decision there's not going to be there's only so many so many good decisions that are going to be taken and uh, and things can tend to pile up and and the the federal government's seeming sporadic attention to to issues that would seem to be kind of important like uh, providing passports i think speaks to sometimes the the limits of, of bandwidth from that centralization model and so if I think EB is is clearly a, a capable person. He uh, certainly can can figure this out and, and allow the the ministers he's put in place to do the work that that he's assigned to them and uh, and to allow this to be a, a multi headed government and, and to give people the space to 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 run in the direction that that they've 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 been assigned and also they they grow into these roles uh while still maintaining a coordination across a a united team it seems like internally everyone is getting along who is at at the cabinet table at least and so so that's a a good place to start and and if that coordination and an era of good feelings can continue then 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 it can be a successful government but you can see where there are some some potential challenges they're going to have to work around well jumping from building homes to building, I guess, roads in transit. Let's talk briefly about the transportation minister's mandate letter, Rob Fleming. And I guess this ties into Dan Coulter, the new minister of state for transit. They're very overlapped roles in this situation. Uh, What struck me about Fleming's mandate letter is the first two bullet points in there are roads. It's widening Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley, an important project to be clear. And expanding the Fraser River Tunnel Project or moving that forward. Uh, But, you know, your SkyTrain advocates listening to this podcast are probably going to be slightly disappointed that their priorities in there got buried a bit further down to be, you know, subsumed under working with the Mayor's Council to advance Surrey Langley and UBC SkyTrain. And there was also a mention of working with the Mayor's Council on the North Shore uh, Burrard Inlet Rapid Transit. Although I think because those are multi-part party projects you can't, the province isn't just going to come in on day one and be like we're doing ubc skytrain tomorrow as much as our listeners would have hoped that would happen maybe the second hundred days yeah 150 days to get those going uh there is still of course a focus on including trans transit and active transportation in that highway one expansion uh if and when i say that's important if you try to drive out of this city ever it's hell. Like, I'm not saying it should be like adding lanes is a solution, but it's not great right now. Because if you just try to go on a road trip, it could take you hours to get there was that snowstorm, people got stuck on the highway overnight. I mean, that's a bit of an extreme. I missed that by I missed that by about an hour. If I had left an hour later, I would have been sleeping in my car. So it's, it's a real thing. But it's but it, it's a real thing. But building just as as you say, building um, more lanes is not the thing that's going to solve the thing that's a problem with the highways. Uh, so there's a there's a, a need for uh, infrastructure and transit. So it, clearly, it's going to be uh, coordination between uh, 
Coulter and, and Fleming here. And, and so I, I wonder if they end up with this division of labor where uh, Coulter is the minister for, for, for buses and transit and, and, and Fleming is the, the minister for cars and highways. Uh, maybe that's the way it, it ends up shaking. I think that's how it worked when, yeah, I think that's how it worked when Bowen Ma had the minister of state portfolio. She was the minister of state for TransLink. And so she got to take the pictures with the, you know, the, the tunnel boring machines as they started work on the subway and spent all their time in the Elm Tots Facebook group. And now that can be Dan Coulter's job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He can bike to work every day. Uh, I thought the mandate letter for our new mental minister of mental health and addictions was interesting. This is a role that's been criticized in the last, you know, since it was created as it's not entirely clear what it's doing uh, besides kind of communicating what the minister of health is doing on these issues and so there is a focus on here on expanding treatment facilities, expanding the prescribed safe supply program. That's been heavily criticized as lackluster and, you know, wholly insufficient. Uh, so focusing on trying to break through with the colleges and overcome barriers to making sure that program works. And I think the real challenge for this new minister, Josie Osborne, is that January 1st, we got our wish and some drugs are kind of decriminalized in BC. And that's when that federal health uh, exemption comes into play. So that'll be a big is, challenge. Is it uh, uh, Josie Osborne or Jennifer Whiteside? Jennifer Whiteside. I said Josie Osborne. You're right. Um, I, I think this is a this is one of those uh, portfolios where it is, um, it is a new face. I think Whiteside was in education previously. Yeah. Um, but but so moving from one uh, file where I think the government faced criticism, but also was able to deliver on things like like labor peace, uh, as as you were mentioning, uh, this is another uh, difficult file for for the government where they are limited in terms of the answers they they seem to be able to provide. So implementing decriminalization is going to be a a major project for for this government and expanding the health services available to to respond to that, but. Uh, expanding the existing uh, su- sources of of, uh, of support for for those dealing with uh, issues of mental health and dealing with issues of addiction, uh, there's there's only so much that can be done without without significant additional resources. Again, we come back to that that resource challenge. If there are no uh, treatment uh, spaces available for for those who need uh, sust- sustained support for dealing with with, with whatever challenges they're encountering. Um, the solutions are going to be more of a of a bandaid or more of a a, a temporary sort, and uh, and and none of this is going to deal with the the underlying challenges of uh, a poison drug supply, and so so this is something that the government doesn't have a fundamental answer to. Uh, it can't uh, eliminate the supply of poison drugs. It seems like it is uh, beyond the reach of the government to to consider something like pr- providing a safe supply. And so it seems like it's going to be stuck in between and, and talking about the, the ongoing tragedy, but not being able to ultimately address it, which is a, a real tragedy. Yeah, it's something that requires some radical action. And I'm a tiny bit optimistic. There's a little bit more focus in here, but a lot of it is also saying, oh, we're going to do the recommendations from the last report that advocates criticized heavily for being lackluster. And that's kind of in the approach to it. Six people die a day. It's just, it's, we're going to do, we're going to do what we're doing more. And and I don't know if that's the the qualitative change necessary to, to deal with the scope of the crisis. Uh, In fact, I know it's not. 
The person who's going to definitely be doing a lot is Solicitor General Mike Varnwith. His last one I'll mention. I mean, there's we could go into everyone, but I think he had one of the most interesting because it was one of the longest mandate letters. He had a bit of everything in there, uh, and I guess it goes to you know his competency as a minister. You can disagree with his decisions, but he knows how to make decisions. Uh, right off the bat, he's told to implement the recommendations from that committee to reform the police act. It's unclear to me how many that would be, because that was a very comprehensive report that started with, let's get rid of the RCMP and bring in a BC provincial police, which this government has not talked about wanting or being willing to do. You could probably say you've done most of the police act reform without doing that, but I'm I suspect that watching what has happened in Surrey, there's going to be extreme reluctance to to moot the idea of uh, let's change this police force and turn it into a different police force. It just is a seems like it's a recipe for for an incredible headache and uh, uh, and uh, challenges and uh, and it, it's uh, a, a real. Uh, possibility of being stuck between two police forces having to go back and forth between them which is what Surrey seems to be trying to accomplish at the moment and uh, and uh, so i think they're going to probably try to steer clear of that again it's this is one of those portfolios where i think the government is trying to 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 do some things that they've already put in motion but not really trying to uh, expand a lot of uh, political capital and, and uh, oxygen in the room and if you run through the list of, of the other responsibilities given to mike farnworth i would say you, there's a, a pretty good argument that he is really the successor to the david eby role in this this cabinet the the minister for for everything potentially explosive and difficult he uh, mike farnworth is dealing with uh, ICBC, uh, dealing with uh, Cullen Commission recommendations regarding money laundering, uh, implementing calls for justice, dealing with uh, uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And, and so that's a, a hugely important issue that um, there's, there's all sorts of, um, of uh, justice involved in doing that, but also peril for the government if it's not done uh, just so. And uh, uh, dealing with uh, issues of, of gangs, dealing with uh, uh, on down the line, all the things that that seem like very little upside for the government and a lot of potential downside. Just politically speaking, all kinds of upside from a perspective of justice, but but you want someone that you can trust to handle those those jobs. That used to be David Eby and Mike Farnworth, and now it seems like it's Mike Farnworth. Yeah, um, those. Yeah, a lot of the stuff that David Eby's talked about in his like initial press conferences was about public safety. And so that's all in here, the peer assisted care teams, launching those across the province, the Safer Communities Action Plan. Uh, I didn't even put it in our notes, but there's also convening roundtables across the province with people about making communities safer. So it's a lot. He's going to be very busy, man. It is a lot. Like the ICBC stuff that got mentioned is actually fascinating because it's uh, Mike Farnworth has had the ICBC file for a little while now, since David E.B. largely cleaned it up. I mean, people will vary in their opinion of that. But uh, what got mentioned here is that Farnworth needs to improve the ICBC experience for pedestrians and cyclists involved in vehicle collisions. And this dates back to the infamous Ben Bolliger, I think, Twitter thread after he was hit by a car while cycling and then faced a bill for damaging the car, I think is roughly what happened and he ended up fighting it and was righted in the end but it took a lot of him publicly shaming the government saying i'm in hospital and icbc is sending me a bill like this is not okay mm -hmm. yep although it also is evidence that one person 
I mean, it is not a situation you want anyone to be to be in, but one person really being vocal that something is not right can can make a difference. Government can be effectively uh, spotlighted and, and perhaps a little bit shamed into into uh, taking action. Um, one other point to, to make there, just generally within the portfolio, there's a lot of things that are uh, going on in the, the province that are not necessarily going to be making it into a mandate letter that the province really needs to pay attention to on issues of policing. And, and so those are, uh, I think, a part of the, the unspoken responsibilities of of, of uh, Farnworth as well, dealing with issues of, let's say, the politicization of police forces in Vancouver. This is an issue that um, I think the province needs to be concerned with and do something about, whether it uh, tells uh, pr- police unions that they must remain not impartial within uh, munis- municipal and other elections, uh, um, that's going to be a controversial action, but I, I, I hope we hear calls for it to happen because it needs to happen. Uh, having a politicized police force does no one good, neither the police nor nor the policed. Well, and I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that the public mandate letters is a very modern phenomenon, right? It's only been around for a few years. And when something from government becomes public or is intentionally made public, it's a comms document, right? It is communications and PR tool. So they're not going to put the dirtier and things or things that, you know, need to get done, but are hard to say kindly, I guess, in there in the same way. And so everything they're going to talk about is the stuff they're going to spin in the most positive way. And so, you know, we're going to fight police corruption might be something you could say, but they probably just wanted to avoid starting a fight there Mm -hmm. when they might be able to deal with it a little bit more quietly. They're hoping. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you're, you're right. These are they're all exercises in in communications, and uh, and we do get a, a sense of government priorities and the sense of things the government wants to have done and to be talked about, and uh, and then it's up to uh, citizens and and uh, and those who are speaking on their behalf and and doing reporting on this to to really keep these other issues uh, in the limelight, even if the government doesn't want to talk about them, they do need to be talked about. So just to kind of churn us to close out the show. I found the latest Angus Reid premier approval rating survey. This came out just yesterday, actually, and the data was done. Oh, why didn't I get the number right in front of there? Uh, earlier this month, I believe these come out pretty quick. Here it is, November 28th to December 3rd. Uh, David Eby is m- moderately liked among the premiers. He's kind of middle of the pack with 46% approval. He's no Francois Legault with 57%, but he's also doing a heck of a lot better than Stephenson out in Manitoba, who only 26% like her. Uh, Very funny to me is that EB is just ahead of Daniel Smith at Alberta, who has 42% approval. Uh, Notably, a lot of people really don't like Daniel Smith. And the highest kind of feeling about David EB beside moderately approve is, I don't know, not sure. So, there's not a lot of strong disapproval numbers for him. He's got a plus 20 positive versus Daniel Smith. I think it's like minus 11. A good way to start as a premier, I guess. Yep. I think it, I mean, there are worse places to start from. And there's, this is always the, the challenge of being a, a leader coming in midstream. This is a government that um, is, is no longer a spring chicken. They are now responsible for what is going on in the province. They can try to blame the BC Liberals or the BC United, whatever the name will be, uh, that that particular week. Um, but 
but it's it it is their it is their government and, and these are their files and if housing costs are are high that it is up to the the BC government which is the NDP to 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 have done something about it at this point and uh, so I don't think he's I don't think he's going to get a honeymoon I think he's going to be judged on on what the government does does from here on out and has done to this point and uh, um, I think that gives him. Some room to maneuver, so he clearly is not uh, does not have the extreme dislike that uh, Danielle Smith does, and the, these numbers are recent. But I wouldn't be surprised if that number of strong disapproval for for Smith has increased even more since we learned out, learned what is actually in the uh, sovereignty and in, in, in a United Canada, Canada Act. But uh, that's for a different podcast, I suppose. Uh, for 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 well, that's even changed since we like last talked about it. Yes, it, it changes and changes <laughs> again. It's it. hard to keep track of, other than it is a. a mess of a constitutional grade uh for for eb i think uh um that's that's something he can he can work with but uh the the margin for error is 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 limited i think it's a good place to start though with people either liking you or not being sure as opposed to you know moderately liking you or hating you yeah and so i think it's uh good news for him lots of room he can do with the big surplus he's inheriting he just needs to get on with the work that you know he set out for all his ministers. Yeah, I think something that will potentially work in his favor is his his philosophy of government. I think lines up well with the, the current public mood. So this is uh, this is going to be a little extemporizing, but I think I, I think I'm right here. Uh, one of the ways in which to interpret the municipal elections that we just saw in BC and was that. People really want government to do stuff. It's not like they really want a left-wing government. They really want a right-wing government. They want an effective government. And where we saw incumbents really punished at the municipal level, it was where there was a lot of dysfunction. So the uh, we saw Kennedy Stewart lose out quite convincingly to uh, to Ken Sim, and it was after uh, years of of the Vancouver Council not necessarily seeming to be able to to accomplish a lot. And that's not all at at uh, at Stewart's feet to be laid, but but it's still a reality. And then uh, Doug McCallum and, and Surrey, and on down the line, when government didn't seem to be doing much and seemed to be uh, dysfunctional. Functional, the changes were made, which is unusual at the municipal level. People want government to, to be doing the business of government. And so EB coming from this, this action-oriented mentality with, with money to spend without running the province into a deficit um, should be able to, to make a success of it. Those are, those are good ingredients to work with on top of the, the generally positive public opinion. Well, Stuart, I think we'll end it there and we'll both go get some sleep as very exhausted fathers of rambunctious children absolutely have a good week you too uh, get some rest and uh, we will hopefully talk again soon always enjoy these and that has been playtoast find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca support the show and get access to our slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast our intro music credit is beautiful british columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. playtoast is a production of legend boot media and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.